Welcome to Lean Back. I'm Laura. And I'm Lisa. Today we'll be talking about activism. I mean, I think there's no one definition of what an activist is. Good, because that, that seems right to me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> let's really not start by... There's only one definition. <laughs> we can all agree on it. Um, I think what characterizes <laughs> most activism is uh, action or behaviors intended to change the world or like some facet of the world. I mean, it can take the form of, you know, writing blog posts online, making a zine, defacing advertisements. Uh, it could be your shopping decisions, or it could be organizing events outright. Yeah, I mean, I think that there's some activism that's directed inward at changing the individual. And then I think that there's activism that's directed outward at changing some aspect of culture. Um, I think some activism, that that uh, personal activism, is about existing in the world as a more ethical actor, um, certainly from the left's perspective. And I think, you know, the collective action is about people moving in larger groups to transform the culture. I also, though, think that there is conservative activism, too, obviously. So it's not like activism is only ideologically pure on the left or something. I mean, the Tea Party started as an activist sort of space, <laughs> certainly. Um, you know, I think that there are conservative places for activism, too, for certain. I think the inward activism can exist on a broad scale, too. Mm -hmm. I know a lot of people talk about, especially... Um, Buddhists talk about uh, compassion and love as a type of activism. Mm -hmm. And on a broad scale, the Tibetan people, in order to promote themselves as a peaceful group separate from the Chinese government, have mostly taken a compassionate approach. And that's a kind of activism. Oh yeah, I think that choosing to mark loving-kindness as your orientation towards others is, is definitely activist. You know, I mean, I think there's, there are questions of strategy and tactic in that too. <laughs> you know, especially if you have an authoritarian regime that has at varying points um, supported cultural genocide. I think that there are strategic reasons why loving kindness and perhaps even nonviolence become interesting strategic choices, but I, I absolutely think that that compassion is an activist, can be an activist perspective. I think, though, you know, I, I like thinking about compassion as, um, as a, an activist strategy because it's, it can be accessible, whereas I feel like, especially today, you know, there is a lot of activism that's happening among communities of color and poor communities, I'm thinking of Black Lives Matter, that is about responding to immediate life or death issues of concern. 
And then there is the kind of activism that is indexed entirely by privilege. You know, so I think, you know, you and I talk about food culture here and food as activism. And I, I, on Thanksgiving, I always want, want to post, but I don't post about sort of self-righteous veganism and about how veganism demonstrates a high degree of privilege and the ability to choose not to eat meat as a source of sustenance because, I mean, that's just like not a thing that's available, especially because, you know, food scarcity and food deserts exist, especially in Arkansas. It's the, so, so it's not that veganism is not necessarily a moral choice, of course it can be, or that it's not based in loving kindness, but it is definitely indexed by privilege. And it's not just that. I think a lot of the activism that's built around consumption, it hinges almost entirely on privilege. And I don't think it's the exact same relationship with love or compassion. I think those are things that, do, that exist in relation to consumption, but not in the same way to activism. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, when I think about activism, it's hard not to think about it as a privileged thing, especially if we're talking about white people. I mean, online activism is about privilege and about defining, you know, what it means to <clears throat> to participate in political culture with access to technology, despite, you know, the technology gap that is well documented in poor communities and communities of color the broadband gap and access and high-speed internet, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So it's not, that I, it's not that all activism is the same. And the types of activism, I think, are intersected by the amount of comfort that the activist enjoys as a result of their privilege. And then I also think it's intersected by what people have to give up, you know, like how much, how much is being sacrificed in order to help the greater good and you know that those are not equal among all types of activists i'm not even saying they have to be i'm just saying that they're not so for communities of color that are doing like black lives matter activism the cost is much higher well i'm glad that, i'm glad that that movement has received so much attention and is continuing to receive so much attention and it's building steam because i think it's inspiring other people to be active, even if they have privilege and even if they don't have to fight against something that is so, like you said earlier, life or death. I think seeing that kind of activism creates a kind of um, effect of having people believe that they can actually enact change. What's interesting to me about it is that it's a major movement that's been accelerated by online action. I mean, as soon as an activity happens, it can be shared on a broad scale. That use of hashtags and activism, it's changing how fast these things are moving and the availability, like it's creating opening up a space for people who couldn't didn't have the resources to participate I don't know I mean the thing I like about online activism is that you can say more radical things online and move people in different directions because they are unattached to communities out floating around in the ether and I like that and you know and obviously there have been professors who have gotten into hot water 
because of that, uh, Stephen Salida being the most obvious example. Um, but his case is so useful because it demonstrates how catalyzing even short comments on the internet can be around issues that are of extreme important importance to the culture right now. And if you're not familiar with Salida, um, he was had been hired but had not yet started at the University of Illinois, and the Board of Regents there got upset because he uh, tweeted what they thought was an inflammatory tweet about the state of Israel in support and expressed his support for, for Palestine. And in my mind, he was not aligned at all, and he was also being a provocateur about issues of American complicity and apartheid and empire and all sorts of other things that were both totally in the purview of his intellectual um, training and also appropriate for the kinds of conversations that he was curating online about divestment from Israel. And, the, and that case is worth reading about extensively because there are so many interesting aspects to how um, his case really highlighted the tremendous amount of influence that online speech can have. And for me, I think that the digital activism is very interesting because the publics are so different and the intimacy is so high and the accessibility to public figures collapses. It becomes, they become mirror to people who are online, which makes it very exciting and interesting. And like you were saying, it's happening in real time. So even the time can be managed in a different way than it could be, say, in the 60s when you had to get together a couple thousand people and march on a city and collect the permits. And, you know, I mean, all of that sort of physical apparatus of moving through space collapses with online activism. Um, but then the conversations are not so deep. And so the content changes, the way that activism is articulated changes based on the forum. You know, I have a lot of uh, old head communication professors who constantly berate Twitter and online activism like it's not real. And I just think that that's so out of touch and completely ridiculous because I've seen it mobilize hundreds and thousands of people all across the globe for different political ends to topple regimes, you know, to filibuster bills, to influence legislators you know, to expose corruption. And it seems like a useful tool in social organizing, but we just can't, we, I just feel like there's a risk in overstating its utility as though somehow what happens online in terms of organizing replaces what happens outside of the virtual. And instead, I think it's smarter to think about online activism as something that accentuates what we can do in person. It's a different way of connecting people and building relationships when you can't cross time or space because it's not a practical thing. But it still falls prey to racism and heterosexual, you know, heterosexism and ableism and, you know, other forms of, of um, institutional oppression. It still has those things because it's part of the culture. I think you're right that a lot of people can say something online and consider that a form of activism and it kind of like ameliorates their outrage about it 
So it's like, I said something online about it, and now I kind of feel like I did my part. Speech is action. So in the same way that individuals make decisions that they think are ethical, and that's an expression of activism, so too is speech in the public arena. I mean, in the last episode we were talking about how, um, you know, objecting in the workplace is taking a risk, and that it's anxiety-producing. I know lots of people whose speech on Facebook or Twitter makes them anxious when there's conflict online, and it becomes difficult for them to navigate the kind of anxieties that that kind of intellectual conflict, you know, creates the conditions for. And um, part of that is because people say more extreme versions of their opinions online because they're not confronting other people face-to-face, and I think there's both danger and utility in that. It's dangerous because that's where hate speech happens online. So you see all these trolls going after Anita Sarkeesian because she's crowdsourcing funding to do, you know, a, a gendered analysis of production and conception of video games. And you see it in uh, the Reddit conversation about Ellen what Pow mm-hmm. uh, and her her resignation from Reddit. You, I mean, you see it in all these online spaces where. Um, the trolls are using hate speech to drive women away from speaking as action. Certainly it happens to folks of color and queer folks. And I mean, there is a, a definite um, violence to online activism that is noteworthy and that makes it dangerous and on the razor's cutting edge of, of social change. But it also, for me, that demonstrates that speech in and of itself is power. And so I think that we can see it both ways. We can't minimize the importance of writing those things online. We also can't make that all activism into just, you know, reposting a meme. You know, it can't just be a like and share situation. Like, that. there's there's less risk in that than there are in other things. And so for some folks, the highest risk that they can actually handle because of their social position in the culture is a like and share and okay. You know, but for people who can afford, who have the privilege, who can afford to take greater risks and spend the money and spend the time and build the influence and undermine the structures that they benefit from, then they, it's incumbent upon them to take a large, large degree of risk and their activism should look different. I think though that it is important that people can play that small role, like the like and share. Mm -hmm. And I think, Activism has become more visible and more normalized now that there are so many spaces online where it's happening. At at the same time, it's become diluted because now things can be like a picture of a tweet or a soundbite or uh, a meme and people aren't getting the whole message. Yeah, I mean, online activism is truncated in a lot of ways. And, and so for me, as an academic, I'm okay with that because I have all the tools necessary for all the backstory. I know what the arguments are. You know, I was a debater. I teach argumentation. I do politics. I've read all the things. For me, those enthematic kind of assertions aren't a problem because I can bring all this stuff to the table to fill in, you know, the premises and conclusions that are miss- missing. So the audience is different from online activism. It, it, it assumes, online activism assumes a higher degree of literacy. 
because the context is shrunk, shrunken so much. Um, and so the audience changes, right? And the goals change. And then, you know, the messaging obviously is different. Um, I just think that it's interesting to see how innovative the online space has become in influencing publics, in curating content, and then in creating new avenues to build even traditional social change. Um, so the Wendy, Wendy Davis filibuster on HB2 in Texas, I mean, there I watched the count go up as I watched that online, as I watched the filibuster live and the live feed in the Texas legislature, and I watched it go from, you know, a couple thousand people to like a million people watching it all online at the same time. I have never, I've marched on Washington. I've been with a million people, you know, on the National Mall. And this was a different kind of exhilarating. That's important because I think it's super foolish to underestimate or misrepresent the tremendous amount of connection that people are finding online that they can't find in their geographic communities or in their families or in their friend network. And that's where the potential for social change to me really is. And it also gets to one of the larger so, sort of obvious overarching themes of this podcast, which is feelings. So I think that the online space creates the opportunities for different kinds of feelings that people are not feeling in their day-to-day -day lives. I mean, they're feeling mundane feelings too, and they're feeling the anxiety that I talked about previously, but they're also feeling intense connections with others. And it doesn't matter what part of the political spectrum they're on, they're feeling deep attachments to new communities. And regardless of how you feel about those communities, I, I would think that in representative democracy, such as we might you know, <laughs> aspire to be, that people connecting with others deeply in, in meaningful ways is something that we would want to support, you know, even if we don't necessarily ideologically agree with them all the time. And so, I don't know, and I also think that activism relies, must rely on pleasure playfulness and the absurd I mean think about King's assassination in Lorraine Mort Motel right before he was assassinated he was having a pillow fight with his advisors while he was there protesting on behalf of the sanitation workers in Memphis Martin Luther King Jr. was having a pillow fight in a hotel room with his bros. I mean, like, that's what I, so that's what's happening online too, is that even though the memes are truncated messages, they're also forms of play. And I think they carry feelings with them. They carry disgust and disappointment, and they carry diversion, and they, they carry friendship. And that is an unexplored, I think, or underexplored aspect of online activism that is worth, worthy of study. There's something really visible about play, too, which I think can help carry a message. Um, there's that activist group, the bake Baker's Parade or whatever, that pies. Yeah. You know, um, important figures who they consider to be perpetuating a corrupt system. Or I know Adbusters has been really visible in, like, subverting advertisements with, like, Ronald McDonald or, like, Joe Camel. And they're, like, silly and cartoonish, but also it indicates, you know, that you can read more deeply 
into, um, I don't know, play is like a place of exploration, you know, yeah. mm-hmm. and they're encouraging people to like explore things a little bit more. I know there's like types of online activism where uh, people all decide to get online at the same time and click an advertisement so that it costs, <laughs> you know, the company its data, you know, they don't, they can't tell who's clicking from where and a bunch of money because it's like a pay per click system. So they're just like, <laughs> <laughs> that's so awesome. I've never heard of that, but I like it. It mm-hmm. appeals to me. <laughs> yeah. So to me, it's one of those things where it, it makes activism accessible. And also the stakes, but the stakes are so low. Yeah. The stakes there are just very, very low. I'm not saying it's not important. And certainly, you know, if you watch young people who are starting on it, especially into online activism for the first time, they get thrilled. You know, it's thrilling for them to connect online with politicians or famous people. I mean, there's a real a real deep pleasure in making contact that way and in participating in a place that simultaneously uh, can be um, terrifying. I call Twitter sometimes the terror dome Um, and also anonymous, you know, both are true. I think accessibility of activism is really important. I just think that the thing that is lost then is, sort of the the depth of activism and, and then the sh- you know giving up the privilege yeah and that's a balancing act in any kind of assessment of activism's goals but if we're just thinking about how to train a, a population of people to be engaged then the bar is really rather low if we're trying to teach them how to change ideology or social systems or policy then the sacrifices are greater and it's more complicated and it's less accessible. And it's just that those are just things that are part of the field of activism, you know? Mm-hmm. I think the hardest thing is, is being an activist in your workplace, though, you know? And as you and I were preparing for this, we were talking at length about Edward Snowden as an activist and whistleblowing as an activist you know, as an expression of intense activist potential. I mean, where, like, clicking on the ad together is subversive, whistleblowing the NSA <laughs> is high risk. Yeah. High risk and low personal yield, but certainly high, high yield for freedom of information. What do you think? What do you think about whistleblowers and, and whistleblowing as activism in this context? A lot of times for action to be taken, there has to be, you know, a matchstick or tipping point like Edward Snowden. I don't know. It makes, he's, he's a smart and articulate person. He's clearly not crazy. Um, and I think there's a lot of like association of people who take extreme action or our activists as being like unstable or crazy or difficult. Mm -hmm. And I think it's clear that he's a really reasonable person and he's a really good spokesperson. 
The only thing is, is that, you know, I feel the same way about Snowden, obviously, as Daniel Ellsberg, who leaked the Pentagon Papers, the Washington Post. You know, I mean, if, if part of our understanding of a representative democracy is that we get to call the government out on their excesses and their abuses, then whistleblowers should be held up as the highest expression of democratic potential. And they're not, which exposes how liberalism and fascism are intertwined in the same country and the same enshrined in the same governmental agencies that are intended, you know, were intended to protect us. And I see the same thing in the university, right? And there's a reason it's called liberal arts education. It's the liberal part that's important. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's like thinking freely and holding lots of opinions at once and being able to investigate them all for their flaws and deficiencies as well for their potentials is the goal of higher education at its best. Censorship and political censorship in particular is where the authoritarianism is, you know, is intertwined in the liberal arts tradition and they become massively entangled. And it's not like it's just higher ed or just the government. I mean, it's, it's in every facet of American life. But for me, in thinking through about what it means to be an activist, I get very disappointed with academic professors who have all of this knowledge and all of these skills, and they refuse to translate them for lay publics to teach people how to be more articulate and polished and engaged in advocating for their communities. And they just sit in the ivory tower with that information and talk to one another, even though they're tenured. Like, the whole point of tenure is to protect intellectuals from being fired so that they can pursue unbiased research. If you have tenure, you have a social obligation to use that position and that privilege to disseminate the information that you have that would help make the democracy stronger and the communities more softened. But people don't. And part of it is the anxiety and precarity and scarcity that we were talking about in the last episode where academics feel like even if they have tenure, it could be taken away at any point. And that's not totally unfounded. Certainly there are state legislatures all around the country, Wisconsin in particular, that are trying to you know, undermine intellectual productivity in higher education and control what people think. And you see it in the Texas legislature with what they're mandating in the textbooks for K-12 education to erase, you know, the mention of slavery as a forcible enterprise in the Americas. Um, But at the end of the day, in those places where tenure still exists, it seems to me that there is a social obligation for academics to be, understand their work as activists, whether it's inside of their own institutions or in connecting their research to broader publics. There's an ethical obligation to do that. So I think at least in the communication field, because we do communicating, (laughs) a lot of us identify as activist scholars, where the scholarship informs the activism, the activism informs the scholarship. That seems super important to me. But in other places, in corporate enterprises, I see how it's much harder to be an activist in the workplace. But it's also the culture of of scarcity. Like if if we think about the economic collapse of 07, 08, and how devastating that has been and was in both massively exacerbating the rich poor gap and in skyrocketing unemployment and saddling people with debt whether it was home debt or student debt 
I just think about that and I think, of course, that's going to disincentivize workplace transparency and collectivity because there actually is scarcity and precarity in a lot of people's jobs, especially when they don't live in giant urban centers where they can leave jobs easily. And, you know, so there are, there are whole hosts of structural reasons why people don't feel comfortable being the activist at their workplace. You know, and and there are very, those are very real reasons for a lot of people when they're providing for families. But, you know, at the end of the day, that's always what activism is about is what are the sacrifice what are the sacrifices you're willing and able to make now that will make things better now and in the future. Mm-hmm. And the only people that get to make those decisions in a calculated manner are people who already have privilege. Because when activism is organic and takes place in communities under duress especially when it's a life or death issue, the, the only calculations are totally and completely immediate. And there is not, there is not the kind uh, or scope of examination of what can be sacrificed in the same way that there is for white people in corporate America. And certainly not if those white people are uh, heterosexual and middle class and you know, have extended networks of wealth to tap into should they fail. And I mean, the risk looks totally and completely different. And yet even for those white people, you know, the feeling is still like, I can't do this. And that would be, that would kill my career and blah, 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 blah. Yeah. Some of that's true. And some of it's not true. Some of it's, you know, the bird cage of Mm -hmm. the inability to see how oppression and privilege are working together to keep people from activating collectively. And also it's, it's the fact that we don't have, you know, labor unions are a double-edged sword, right? Like any other institution, they can, the leadership can be calcified and corrupt. But on the whole, I mean, it's very difficult for me to hear arguments that do not support collective wage negotiation. That is just crazy mm-hmm. to me. I think also it's important to distinguish between just being uh, a dissident and taking um, and taking like a legal official channel to enact change. Like there's um, a really nice documentary about Prop 8 and like the legal process that the plaintiffs went through. Yeah. To absolutely um, get the Supreme Court to overturn Prop 8, and I thought that was a nice piece on activism because you can really, you know, cooperate within the system to enact change. And that kind of change to me, while not like it doesn't move the bar all that much forward, but it sets a precedent. Well, here's the thing, you know, I had a, I was invited to coffee as I am so frequently uh, with a local activist. This is probably a year or two ago. And, he uh, was trying to tell me about, you know, working outside of the system. And I, I just had to stop him. And I, just, I don't understand what, where is this outside of the system you think you are? You don't exist outside of the system? No, you don't. You know, the entire economy is integrated with all kinds of fascist apparatuses around food production and consumption and, you know, wage slavery. Oh, you've used Amazon? Sorry. You've shopped at Walmart, sorry. Like, I mean, it's not like there are some corporations that are somehow exempt from 
all the things that he was, you know, attempting to isolate as deleterious social conditions. And so, you know, that for him, and he's older, he's in almost 70, you know, that was a, an adjustment he had not, nobody had explained to him that that was like not the case anymore. You know, everything is financially integrated with problematic modes of production and consumption. There's no outside of the system. So I'm okay with people operating even in, you know, small ways because that in many cases is all they can do. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I mean, it's not like we're gonna, anybody's going to have an armed revolution in America. It's too big. Too many people. Governments, well, this is like not a thing that's going to happen here, like ever, not a thing. So then that means that activism as a goal has to take up shorter term, localized goals that don't have world change necessarily at their heart, you know? And I'm okay with that, which is why it's like, you shared a post and that's a way for you to interrogate your subjectivity and that seems useful. But what do you think about campaigns for massive change? Like the Occupy Wall Street campaign? The Occupy Wall Street campaign was most successful in creating the meme about the one percenters, which is a conversation about class that has not happened in the U.S. in a hundred years. And that is a massive contribution into the, to the way that we as a culture talk about wealth and poverty. So that was useful. And it was also a tableau about how the government will crack down on protesters even if they're white and destroy social movements. Also useful. Um, I don't think it's bad to have lofty goals about systemic change. But those are political imaginaries more so than they are in, like, an execute you know, like a thing that can be executed well like bernie sanders is a fantasy of you know upper class white people who want to believe themselves to be radicals and who have a vision of america that's deeply rooted in a lot of the of the traditions of, of liberalism but he as president even if, if he were elected which of course he's not going to be even if he were elected, he would have so little influence on any of the things that he's talking about that pertain to class or wealth distribution or whatever. I mean, like, that's not how that's not how the government is set up. The president doesn't make laws. So, you know, th those are fantasies. And those fantasies of identification are useful, but they don't lead to the goal. It's just something you say to create community among other people. So I don't think, I don't, you know, I think that those are fantasies of identification more than anything else. But in the workplace, you know, I think about the goals of act activism in the workplace. And for me, as a scholar activist, I'm most interested in using the data at my disposal as a scholar to help change the attitudes of people who have power in my institutions that I work in, you know? So I'm like, here's the data about how this works. Here are things that have been done in the past that are super successful. Here's how we change the culture with these two policies that would make it more equitable or safer or productive or whatever for the communities that I'm interested in advancing. And that's activism. I wish more people would take that data, even internally in their institutions, and do that. And this is where I think white people in corporate America are doing such a piss poor job because they're not doing that. 
they're not looking at optimization data and saying, you know what, if we paid our workers $10 more an hour, we would make more money and have a more ethical business model with higher morale and, you know, like all of these things that you would think people would care about in business but don't. They're not doing that work. The people who are in charge of corporations who could be making the difference, you know, for millions and millions of people's lives are not actually using the data at their disposal to create more ethical workplaces, which is a problem. And when they do, they get hammered for it. I, when Walmart increased their wages, their stock share dropped precipitously and continues to flounder. They made a small step that doesn't even come close to as far as they should go. And they, the market did not support their decision. Didn't support it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Also, there are companies that use activism as a type of uh, branding. I mean, their goal as a company is to make money, but they use activists and progressive principles to justify their business. Yeah. Like Chipotle Absolutely. is like, <laughs> has actually made a lot of educational material about factory farming and disseminated a lot of information about the negative effects of factory farming, but they're not doing it because they are against factory farming. They want people to spend money on their burritos. Well, you know, I I was thinking about Bono, which I hate to do generally, but, you know, <laughs> and just sort of consumption as activism, I find just so problematic. I'm like, the problem is consumption. <laughs> Consumption can't solve the problems of consumption. You know, when the corporation is has well-documented history of sweatshop labor and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But, I, you know, consumption is, like, in my mind, never going to be the answer. Like, that is, that is not a model of activism that is sustainable or transformative. Not at all. Boycotting works. Mm-hmm. It's really it's still rather effective. But buying things, that is not. It is not transformative. Not buying things is, has much more transformative potential. If people bought less, they would be better off in every single way possible. Every single way. All of the peoples would be better off. Uh, but, but buying things, it, I, I mean, it's just so crazy. It's like, buy this thing and 10 cents will go to the thing that that I care about. It's like, why don't you just give all $8 to that? I mean, it's, it's, it's hard to fundraise for social change. People don't want to give their money. So it's not like I don't understand why piggybacking on, um, you know, on consumption is not a necessary tactic. But if people actually care, <laughs> they should just give their money directly, you know, to the organizations that are doing that kind of work, period. I mean, you know, if people, if someone were to ask me, how can I make the biggest difference? I wouldn't say, go buy a shirt where a dollar of the proceeds get diverted to the schwan or this and that. I mean, I would not say that that's just like not the best way for you to be <laughs> efficient as an activist or, or really to have the biggest impact. 
that's why I like lean back as an idea is because it actively involves the agency of somebody saying, I'm going to step away from the situation and examine all of these structures and factors that are creating the moment that I'm in. And I'm not, I'm going to pull back whatever of my agency that I can to not be complicit in the violence or the exploitation that the situation is calling for. Leaning in does not do that. Leaning back is where you get the ability to see what kind of options are available for interventions in the workplace or in public or in your family or whatever. That's when you can see here's how the structures are constraining or enabling new opportunities. If you lean in, you can't see any of that. Leaning in is all about making sure that it's impossible to see the avenues available for creative dissent. And I'm heavily, I mean, it's not, I write about social movements for a living and I write about democracy. And insofar as democracy is a goal, you know, creating a healthy democracy, then there have to be avenues of productive, constructive dissent. Thanks for listening. These materials are not endorsed, approved, sponsored, or provided by or on behalf of the University of Arkansas Fayetteville.